that brings us to 9 a.m. on the nose. Greetings live from downtown Columbia. This is Community Pulse, your locally produced report on the coronavirus pandemic here in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse live Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. right here on KOPN. Uh, All episodes are then uploaded to our website, also our Facebook profile, and you can check us out on both Apple and Spotify podcasts now, should you so desire. So today on the program, we'll be discussing the functionality of schools in the COVID era once again. Uh, We cordially invite our listeners to check out the Community Pulse archives. We have some of a great previous treatment of this subject matter, including multiple discussions with uh, CPS Superintendent Dr. Peter Stiepelman. Schools, as everyone knows, uh, are an absolutely essential pillar of our societies, and their reopening obviously requires highly nuanced consideration. On a micro level, we of course have the safety of individuals to be concerned about. On a macro level, however, it is only through bold experimentation that we can obtain the models and templates necessary to reopen schools safely. On the discussion docket this morning, we have two instructive sets of guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics, a set of guiding principles from the CDC, and a pair of studies about educational environment transmission uh, for children from the AAP and NIH. And of course, as always, we also have with us, and are very privileged to have with us, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, who will be breaking this down after she gives us the numbers. Dr. Alleman, good morning to you. Good morning. Um... Yeah, let's start with the numbers. The total world documented cases is 13 million with uh, 572,000 deaths and 7.4 million people in the process of recovering. In the United States, we've got 3,415,554 confirmed cases. And for the first time since we've started this that I can remember, we um, are not one quarter of the world's cases. I don't know that's really all that great. I think it has to do with the fact that Brazil is um, uh, surging ahead, falling behind, however you want to say that. But um, And we have had uh, almost 138,000 deaths that have been documented with 1.5 million people recovering or recovered. Um, from Matthew Holloway's data, it is very clear that what is happening is... Um, is continuing uh, marked increases in cases in Missouri. So we, the seven-day average of new cases is now 705. And so people have asked, you know, in our second wave, I think that this we finally have, finally like I wanted it, you know, I think that we are seeing the kinds of numbers that we had feared we might be seeing early in the case, so that early in the course of this. So our previous, you know, peak, uh, you know, in the beginning of May was almost less than 300 cases a day. <clears throat> and we are seeing almost every day that this seven-day increase is is larger than the one before. Um, so we have um, more and more cases. We are um, – another statistic that is of interest is, okay, well, we're doing more testing so what about the um, percent positive? And we are now almost a 6% positive case of tests. So if 100 tests are done, six of them are positive. And back again in, you know, mid-May when things were looking nicer, we were, you know, well under the recommended 5%. We were looked like 2 to 3%. Um, so uh, we have... Um, so in Boone County, I'll have to say that I 
So latest updates about Boone County cases are July 6th. Do you have something more? Oh, wait a minute. Here it is. But July 8th is the latest one I have. Do you have something more recent, Peter, for um, uh, Boone County cases? Uh, I do not. No. Okay. I, uh, yes. Sorry about that. Okay. I, I no, no, that I'm not sure. Might... That we, I, it, it's, not, it's likely not possible. So mm-hmm. a total of 597 cases in Boone County with 231 active cases um, and 452 people in quarantine due to close contact. Um, and that's the highest that they've had so far. I did get um, yesterday a communication from Ashley Milham, uh, a physician who is the, the medical director of the Boone County City of Columbia Health Department, um, saying See, we're seeing a lot more cases here in mid-Missouri and we're working diligently to perform case investigations and contact tracing on each and every case to mitigate the spread. We're still asking cases to isolate for a minimum of 10 days plus three days fever-free and symptom improvement has occurred. And we're also asking close contacts um, to quarantine for 14 days. Um, these haven't changed in some time. They continue to be an important mitigation strategy. So they're wanting to test all close contacts, which means the person spent greater than 15 minutes at less than six feet without a PPE or had direct contact with the case during his or her time of infectiousness, which is considered 48 hours prior to symptom onset or prior to the test date if asymptomatic, even if they remain asymptomatic. So we're really... We're asking a lot of people to stay home and really fully isolate themselves, um, and I understand that that's hard. And they're ex- recommending that if people are going to get tested, if they're in contact, that we wait until seven days from the last exposure because we don't want to give people a false sense of reassurance by testing them early when they would not have – they aren't – the disease has not progressed long enough for the test to be positive. So um, – this is the first time that Dr. Milham has reached out, and I'm sure she did not send this directly to me. This is um, something that she's, I'm sure, sending to a larger group of people, and it's the first time. So I just want all of our listeners to know that our public health officials are taking this even more seriously than they had before. And I think what we're seeing, uh, Dr. Um, not Dr. Stephanie Browning, the director of the public health for Boone County in the city of Columbia, said at the last city council meeting that she was recruiting and training volunteers to do contact tracing, which means that they're not able to keep up with their paid staff. Um, I'm sure that she's doing a great job recruiting volunteers, but it just really speaks to the fact that we are stretching our our. our systems. So it's in the context of that that I wanted to talk about school opening because, and then, you know, it's a bigger, it's a whole other thing. I will have to do it another day or maybe many times about um, colleges opening. Um, so, um, and, and this is a national conversation. It's a statewide conversation. It's a local conversation. My Facebook feed is full of really concerned and interested parents who are very conflicted about what to do. And they are, like everybody, as they're concerned about the um, education of their children, they're concerned about the health of, and safety of their children, they're concerned about the safety of all the rest of the people at the school, and they also know that their children are sort of desperate to return to some sort of normalcy. 
and are um, also developmentally in need of interacting with their peers. So we've got all that going on, and everybody is um, really um, concerned. And I'm just going to say, you know, if this is a too long, didn't read it, um, uh, saying you don't have time to listen to the whole thing, the the answer is it's, it's complicated, and um, I don't have all the answers. So there's that. Um, but some of the things, the American Academy of Pediatrics has issued some guidance, and I'm going to say I'm somewhat disappointed in them. Um, they uh, make uh, broad statements uh, as if there are proven facts, and there are no scientific studies referenced uh, in this document. Um, but the bold things that they say is that the American Academy of Pediatrics strongly advocates that all policy considerations for the coming school year should start with the goal of having students physically present in school. And then they talk about why that's important. Um, and they talk about some ways to try to mitigate the risk, which we're all about risk mitigation. And then I'm trying to scroll down. Um, and the only other thing that they bold is about food insecurity. Plans should be made prior to the start of school year for how students participating in free and reduced meal programs will receive food in the event of a school closure or if they are excluded from school because of illness or infection. Um, so they, you know, the tone of this is that, you know, really we can do this. We probably don't have to be as careful as some people are saying. There's some talk about how three feet may as be as good as a six feet rule. And, you know, again, everything is rapidly evolving. So this is in context of the global discussion about the World Health Organization about whether aerosols actually spread this and whether maybe um, 20 feet is not far enough. So, you know, once you put something down on paper, it it gets to have a, 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 a immortality to it, and I will be interested to see whether the American Academy of Pediatrics, who are filled with smart scientists who are reading all the science and participating in that as well. So they talk about um, some strategies. One of them is cohorting, that is to limit the size of classes and have um, the students who are in that class of 10 to 20 only interact with each other during the school day so that they would not have um, larger groups of many classrooms go to recess together or go to the cafeteria together or be in assemblies together. Um, and most people, so here's another overarching thing that I think some people are, are neglecting. The people in schools are of all ages. So we have, we mostly are thinking about the students in schools, but schools also have parents who visit, they have grandparents who visit, other caretakers, family members. There are, of course, teachers and administrators and other staff members. And if we're going to still do buses, we've got bus drivers. So all of those people are also need to be cohorted. That is, a teacher would be interacting with her or his class, but not with other adults in the school physically. So the that doesn't get said, but yeah, anyway. Um, they, they repeatedly say utilize outdoor spaces when possible. And I think that one of the things that we have not done in this country, and it's, it's variable about how easily it works based on climate, weather, and um, uh, urban uh, setting, 
but but education can happen outdoors. And um, in the 1918-1919 pandemic, uh, there were there are photographs of um, school classes going, uh, college classes, uh, younger classes going on outdoors, courts happening outdoors, uh, hospitals happening in tents where you can get a lot of airflow. So outdoor education is something that they talk about and uh, limit unnecessary visitors into the building. Um, I this is I think going to be problematic in the way that limiting visitors in hospitals and nursing homes has been problematic. I think that having parents visit the school is a way to have schools be accountable, and having parents not feel like they can drop into their child's classroom anytime. And I know we've already limited that a significant amount from when I had a young child, but um, I think that that is one of the ways that schools are accountable. I'm not making any accusations. I just think that. We are creating some risk when we um, have one adult unsupervised in the presence of multiple children without a sense that there can be drop-in accountability. I think that hospitals and nursing homes without accountability from family members is all, are also problematic. Um, they list that, uh, so then also using face coverings and the reality that Children are going to have to be taught how to use face coverings in the same way we teach them to keep their clothes on and to wear shoes. So um, to understand that's an educational thing. Talking about keeping desks farther apart um, and maybe having barriers between um, students. These are all things that are going to be very difficult to implement with short notice. Um, I think that we've all been talking for a long time about class size, about how many students should be in a classroom. And if we're talking about putting desks six feet apart, we're really going to have a limitation on how many people can be in the room, part of how it works. Um, so that's the American Academy of Pediatrics. And um, uh, yeah, also they're talking about testing and screening, about asking children every day if they've had symptoms and taking their temperature and the challenges of that often makes people grouped up. It also puts a huge burden on school nurses who will be the obvious people everybody will think will do that. So <clears throat> they talk about many other things as well. But I also wanted to uh, interact with you and know, talk about a couple of like, the CDC has, a, has some guidelines. I think the CDC guideline, I found it much more helpful, much more factual, much less opinion-based. Um, uh, one of the topics that they talk about is uh, changing attendance policies for uh, employees and students so that people can feel free to take a day off work if they, or take a day off school if they are not sure if they're feeling bad without um, paying a big price. Um, and that means uh, we're going to really have to change our the availability of substitute teachers because, again, in the past when substitute teachers were short, what happens is you put two classes in the same room and one teacher teaches them, and that is going to be counterproductive at this point. So, um, so promoting behaviors that reduce spread, according to the CDC, stay home when appropriate, um, educate everybody about staying home. Uh, hand hygiene. One of the things I've heard is that it takes a it takes a lot of time to have 10 to 15 to 20 people go into a restroom with maybe three or four sinks and everybody wash their hands for 20 seconds. And I have heard, I have read, teachers saying there's no time for that and there never has been. 
So we would have to also modify the curriculum to allow adequate hand washing. And hand washing, the statistics are wash your hands 10 times or more a day. So if you're going to do 20 seconds, it's several, it's an hour or so spending time, more than an hour of hand washing or no, it's not. I'm doing the calculation wrong. It's, it's, it's a lot of time washing hands. It's not an hour. It's more like half an hour. Anyway, um, recommending face coverings uh, that we're going to need uh, healthy supplies. One of the things that's very interesting is they're talking about how um, that we do need to disinfect surfaces, but primarily those need to be done by soap and water and by non-bleach disinfectants. So I have been in classrooms where the Clorox wipes came out, you know, before and after we did a, a, a lesson with um, with food, and I was not aware that the CDC recommends that children not be ex- not be in the classroom, not, not be in the room when bleach is being used because of the respiratory risk. And some of the other cleaning, the disinfecting substances need to be used in empty rooms with the person who's using it um, having plenty of ventilation, but the children would not be there. So these are some interesting things from the CDC, discouraging shared objects, um, making better ventilation, Recognizing that uh, COVID-19 isn't the only concern we have, um, that we are concerned about all of the the illnesses our children can get. And since our water faucets and uh, water fountains have been um, not used, that illnesses like Legionnaire's disease could be growing in those, so we need to pay attention to that. Uh, Modifying layout so that uh, crowded hallways are not happening reconsidering the use of lockers, so it's just a place where people congregate, uh, limiting communal spaces, and really redoing food service. Um, anyway, so staggered scheduling, the whole pickup and drop-off needs to be uh, cohorted, and um, all of that is really complex. And I'm wondering how schools are going to pull it off in short time with short funding. So... I see. Yes, I I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the staggered scheduling, uh, sometimes referred to as the rotative setup. Um, Basically, they're using this in Europe now where, uh, you know, kids are attending maybe, say, one out of every three weeks. So they're staggering it so that the classroom sizes uh, are are kept small. They are doing outdoor classes. Um, Many schools have a square footage requirement, or I should say a square meter requirement uh, in Europe with the metric system. Um, there are some PPE requirements, some minimum PPE requirements for the children. Uh, and there also, there's a digital divide in Europe, as, as there is here in the States. They're trying to take some proactive steps uh, towards, <clears throat> you know, basically saying, okay, we, we, we know we have children who don't have access to broadband. So we want to bring them in on a particularly ska- staggered schedule so that they can right. take advantage of, the, uh, of, of digital classes on site. Mm-hmm. So those are, let's see, what did I list there? We have the rotative setup, we have outdoor classes, we have minimum right. PPE requirements, we have square meter requirements, and um, these the so-called proactive steps for the digital divide. Those are, those are five uh, uh, policies that we're seeing in place elsewhere. Uh, and you and remarked at the beginning of the conversation that you know you you kind of a little bit disappointed in the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics for not not getting a little bit more specific there. Um, your thoughts on those on those five uh, policy matters? Would you like to see that yeah, in some of our as a physician? I I think that those are going to be really difficult in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because we have and I don't I don't know whether 
uh, schools in Europe do this. We have put so much of our social safety net in the schools. Mm. So um, I don't know, but I think that in in Europe they, they have fewer people living with so much food insecurity. So they can, you know, how how does a you know sending children to school to you know for a week and then not for two weeks, how do you feed them? Like that's a long time for children to then return to school and uh, food insecurity. Oh yes. Um, so we. Also, so when uh, I was saying staggered schedule, they're talking about some people. You know, this class drops their kids off at eight. Uh, their kids off at eight ten, and the, and I think there's going to be chaos. But again, it's. We've got short time, we've got short um, funding, uh, and we've got a whole lot of competing um, uh, needs for the people who are doing that. The other thing that I think has become very obvious is that schools are really essential in the United States so that parents can go to work and our economy can run. I was just about and, to bring that up. There is a it's right. statistically proven that, I mean, we have a higher percentage here in the United States of uh, families in which both parent, assuming there are two parents in the home, are, are working. So, I mean, yeah, yeah this is a right fine mess as always. <laughs> right. And so I think that we, I would love for us to do some revolutionary thinking things. I think that those things from Europe are a great idea. I just read this morning that Rice University is actually constructing outdoor classrooms. Now, can I just say as an outdoor educator um, uh, advocate, I think that constructing an outdoor classroom feels like an oxymoron. Um, for me, what I like about outdoor education is that it's not inside <laughs> and that you are exposed to the elements and you learn in your ecosystem so that the grass and the bugs and um, uneven ground and plenty of sunlight is part of the learning environment. But still, I think that there are some people who think who believe and they are probably they have some I'm not arguing with this, that some education needs to happen more in a lecture format. And in that case, um, outdoor education can be difficult if you don't have some shelter. Rice University is in Texas, so they're going to need some shade. I get it. So um, so that is a revolutionary concept. I, I think that things are modifications around the margins. And I'm very, I have this huge compassion for the people who are trying to make a decision about Columbia Public Schools. The complex plan they, they designed was made in a time of low and not increasing numbers of infections in our community. And that is not the case anymore. Um, that I don't know what we need to do about school, but I think we need to do something different than the plan that they have. And I, my concern about the weakness is that the plan that Columbia Public Schools has in place that I understand is that whenever there's a case, a student, a faculty or staff member who works in the building tests positive, the school will be closed for three days. I, wonder, I think statistically we're going to have a school closed and one closing and one reopening most of the time through the school year. And I think that that is a, a level of um, unpredictability, confusion, uh, disorganization that is going to quickly become intolerable. I don't know how many times um, parents are going to get notification on short notice that their kids can't go to school have to be home for three days, and then send them back. It's like we're going to have a snowstorm for some school every week. Mm. And that is also assuming and, that 
I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that we're, we're having difficulty just, just getting the manpower for contract tracing efforts, correct? Right. So I think that we may, it's possible that in the, I don't want to be a doomsday prophet. It's possible, and we should all have a plan for what happens when our contact tracing system gets overwhelmed. And now when you find out that you have a positive case, when you test positive, you are going to need to notify the people you've been around and give them advice. Mm. And I think that's going to be really um, confusing for a lot of people. Well, thank you. And then I don't know when the the school finds out. Um, So these are, you know, challenging situations. So I did want to move to the two studies briefly. There's one study from 2012. No, let's see. Where am I going? Yes. From 2012, so not at all attending to this particular virus, okay? So it's just about respiratory illnesses in general. And what they're saying is that in 115 children, they randomized half of them to get flu vaccine and half to get placebo. And over the following nine months, those who were vaccinated had an increased risk of virologically confirmed non-influenza infections. So they were more likely to get a respiratory illness, about four times as likely. So in that, um, influenza also causes death. It also causes serious illness. And it has many symptoms that are overlapping with COVID-19. I'm not going to be able to tell the difference between influenza and COVID-19 this winter by talking to people or examining them. I'm going to be waiting for the test. And all many of the other respiratory illnesses are also going to be difficult or impossible to distinguish from COVID-19. And so I had been thinking, well, we should really encourage influenza vaccination so we can reduce the number of kids who have non-COVID-19 respiratory illnesses that we then have to test and figure it out. And maybe that's not the best strategy. So once again, science has surprised me. Um, and then also a... Um, a study in pediatrics. This one is related to COVID-19. And this is from March 10th to April 20th. Um, all patients less than 16 years old with SARS-CoV-2 infection were identified, and this is in Geneva. Okay, so then they called them and asked them what was going on. And most of the got this illness at home, mostly from their parents. So um, very few of the children were the first, there were the index case in their household. Um, and so, so we're presuming that they got it from their parents. So it sort of asked the question and answers it like, are school children the primary driver of incidents in the community of illness? And it appears that they are not. But it does not at all look at what about school teachers? What about school administrators? What about other staff members? What about bus drivers? Are those people going to be vectors of the illness? And we don't know. The answer is we don't know, but they are a group of people who potentially are coming together in the same building and then leaving. And if aerosols, which move through (laughs) heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems, which I had been just counting on the fact that that was not true, that is really one of the big arguments that's going on on the global scene with epidemiologists writing to the World Health Organization telling them they need to say that it's aerosols and the World Health Organization saying, no, it's not aerosols unless you are getting an aerosolizing medical procedure like being intubated or 
uh, getting a, a high flow nebulizer uh, treatment. So, yeah, I'm just so that is, well. That is an enormously important question. I mean, that, that <laughs> if if you have this virus that that can move through ventilation and heating ducts, then I mean, outdoor education is is the only uh, safe alternative right. so, that we have. So, in the context of that, what I keep coming back to is let's not lose sight of the primary way this is transmitted. The primary way this is transmitted is from one person being close to another person and having their large respiratory droplets move from one to the other. And so if what we're trying to do is flatten the curve, we're trying to let this virus, have this virus move through the community because we missed our opportunity to stop it, if that's our goal, then doing, then doing, then then focusing on respiratory droplet transmission is a, still a totally legitimate approach. If what you're trying to do is protect a vulnerable population and keep them from having any chance of getting it, then I think we have to consider the possibility of aerosol and uh, fomite surface uh, transmission. So. Yeah, I thought I thought I was going to be able to bring some clarity to this. I have the clarity that it's complicated, and I don't know what the right answer is, and I don't think anybody does. Dr. Alleman, that your candor is is so very valuable uh, in a situation like this. Uh, I'm not I've... the only one who's being candid. There are a lot of public people who are being <laughs> candid, the, which is why I read that email from Dr. Milham. Yes, it's like I think she's telling all of us this because she realizes we primary care physicians, primary practitioners are going to have to do this advice giving because the health department is soon not going to be able to do it. True. And also the importance of, well, uh, all of us serving as contact tracers uh, in a way. Uh, right. And being uh, you know, immediate about reporting symptoms and about reporting contacts because the apparatus is simply not in place for that to be traced uh, on a public level. Well, it is right now. So let's just be clear. It is right now, but it is, they are stretched. They are stretched. So there are going to be more delays. And so I am recommending that anybody who has curiosity and the capacity to do it take the free online course through Coursera on contact tracing because it gives you all the information you're going to need in your little household to figure out who's a contact what, and who should, who should stay home for how long and what does it really mean to isolate and quarantine. It's a really well-done course. It takes four or five hours to complete it. Um, you can stop and start. You know, it's graded and you get credit. You know, you get, but if you, if you, if you fail it, it's okay because, like, you're just, this is just you being you and figuring out what you know how to do. Yes, it's not necessarily a, a, a pass fit. Well, I mean, <laughs> it is concept, a pass fail yes, thing. Yes, it is. And, but, I, uh, and I did pass it. You know, there you go. I'm, I'm really have some pride in my educational abilities. Um, but, I don't feel like I'm an expert in contact tracing, but I think it's got some really solid information so that we can all be the experts we need to be in our own health. That is so very important. Thank you so very much for joining us again and You're bringing welcome. these studies Thank and everything. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We will be posting uh, the link to that course and the link to all of the articles that we discussed today on Community Pulse on our website yeah. and on our Facebook feed. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Allman will be back again tomorrow, I believe, and we will have another topic to discuss. As a reminder, you can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday live from the downtown KOPN studios right here on 89.5 FM.
We have all of our programs archived on our website, on our Facebook feed, and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As a reminder, we would like to know what you think about Community Pulse and about uh, programming on KOPN in general. Please leave a message for us at 573-874-1139 or email us at gm at kopn.org. We love to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to the outbreak in our own community. That's what Community Radio is here for. Thank you so much for tuning in to Community Pulse. Thank you so much for tuning in to your listener-supported and volunteer-operated community radio station. An abridged version of background briefing will now follow. We shall see you tomorrow. As a reminder, please stay safe and stay informed, Columbia. Columbia.